please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read out of Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 this morning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up to Mark. If you don't have a Bible, uh, be that digital or, or hardback, I want to encourage you to, um, to, to just follow along with us on the screen. If you, if you need a Bible, uh, let us know. Go across the Connect Center. We gladly give you a Bible so that you have a copy of God's Word. You can also download the ESV Bible on your app, and you'll be able to follow along on your device throughout uh, this morning. I want to let you know about a couple things before we dive into this passage. Uh, we are starting a new series through the book of Mark called Behold the King, uh, where we're going to walk through as far as we can get until, until uh, Thanksgiving. The book of Mark, we'll come back to it either in the spring or in the fall and continue trekking through there uh, just as a people wanting to behold our King Jesus, to see him for who he is uh, as we walk through the gospel of Mark. And, and along the way, we want you to follow along with us while we gather on Sundays uh, but also in your own personal study. So we have purchased a, a, about 40 of these uh, for you uh, to grab if you'd like one. They are uh, ESV scripture journals. So it's basically the scripture on one side and a space for you to journal and take notes on the other. Really helpful resource to follow through. Some of you may have actually just brought this back with you to follow along this morning, and that's great. Do that. Um, also, I encouraged you guys last week, and I know a handful or many of you maybe uh, have joined us in reading through the entire Gospel of Mark leading up till today. I want to encourage you, if you haven't finished, that's okay. That's perfectly okay. Just keep going. Keep going. And the reason that we wanted to read through before we dive into the Mark, the entire Gospel, is so that we can get that 30,000-foot view of what takes place in the entire Gospel according to Mark before we dive into it on an individual level. So uh, these are five bucks. They're not, we're not making any money on here. We're just replenishing stock with them. Uh, so five bucks. If you want one of these, they're in the Connect Center right across the way. You can pay with card or cash over there with that. The other thing, if you've come in since we started, uh, in your chair you would have found this Connect card. We would encourage you at any point throughout the service, fill that out, and you can do three things with it. You can drop it in the box over there. You can take it across to our Connect Center, or you can fill it out digitally with the QR code on the uh, this month at Trailview uh, little info card. So I want to let you guys know that before we dive in. Uh, and then I want us to pray. As you can tell, we, are, uh, we, we pray a lot in our Sunday morning gatherings because we are very needy. Um, as a people in general and individually, we are needy. So I want us to pray uh, before we open up God's Word and dive into the text every single week for two things. One, that we would pray for the Lord to speak. And I say we as in like we're going to give 30 seconds or so in quiet for you to pray and ask God to speak to you. And you may be new to this whole idea of 
Jesus or God or prayer. It's just asking the Lord to speak to you. It's just in your own heart, in your own words, asking the Lord that he would speak to you. The second thing is, is praying for whoever it is that's preaching that morning, that the Holy Spirit would speak through them as just an instrument and a tool to communicate God's truth, his word, and that anything that's not helpful would just disappear, and that the Lord would use the words that are helpful in guiding their thoughts. So pray for the Lord to speak to you, and pray for the Lord to speak through me. So take just a few moments, uh, just quietly, still, not moving around or grabbing anything, and just pray and ask right now, as we open up God's word, that he would speak to you. Father, each one of us, what we need most in life is to hear from you. Right now, there's all kinds of things going on in life that have brought us here, uh, all kinds of things that are going on in our relationships, in our, in our friendships, in our single life, in our hearts, in our marriages, uh, in our kids, and, and all of those things can create all kinds of anxiety. And right now, we just want to say, God, with all that stuff going on, we just want to let it go and ask that you would speak. Just take a few moments, if you would, and just in your own heart, in your own words, pray and ask that the Lord would use me just as a tool to communicate his truth, that the Holy Spirit would speak this morning, uh, guide my mind and my words. Father, I, I'm a sinful, broken man, just like all of us in a need of you regularly and consistently in my life and in the moments like this most. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak through me this morning? Would you guide my thoughts, my words? Would you uh, let them be encouraging and helpful? Uh, would you let them be uh, useful? Uh, God, would you wipe away anything that isn't? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite movies that many of you have probably never heard of is The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, some of you may have heard it, may have seen it. It's a, a phenomenal story. It's an epic story of love, betrayal, prison escape, fortune, grace, and ultimately later revenge. Uh, it's an excellent movie, but along the way, um, you have Edmond Dantes, who's escaped from prison, who returns to we believe it's probably France, and, and he finds this newly found wealth and treasure, and so he has planned this epic party, this huge party, and he sends out letters to all of the other wealthy people in the area, inviting them to the party. These are super fancy uh, like invitations, and when they get them, they open up, and they're like, oh man, this guy must be really important. This looks really fancy. Like, and so they all show up, and they all come to the party, and they're all gathered outside this huge courtyard in this mansion, all just kind of mingling, eating, drinking around with one another, all just kind of there. Uh, but the Count of Monte Cristo is nowhere to be found. And then in the midst of this big party, the sun is setting, they see fireworks go off behind the mansion. And these fireworks immediately draw their attention. The whole crowd turns their faces towards the, the mansion, and Jacopo steps up to the railing. And Jacopo, when he steps up to the railing, he says this, dressed really fancy, looks really great, and says this, Ladies and gentlemen, it is with great honor that I present to you His Grace, the Count of Monte Cristo. 
and Jacopo disappears out of the frame, and it's giant hot air balloon, this is a long time ago, comes up over the top of the mansion and slowly rests itself down right in the middle of the courtyard. You have these like acrobat guys that come down on ropes, and they, they bring this hot air balloon down, and the Count of Monte Cristo, Cristo arrives. He walks out of the balloon, he steps up to the railing, and he says, hello, and then he walks away. You have this grand, this epic introduction, this whole theatrical thing that takes place. Jacopo, who steps forward and makes this extravagant presentation and announcement that the count has arrived. See, as we look through the gospel according to Mark, the first eight verses, Mark 1 through 8, is this grand introduction to the king. It's this grand introduction to who this whole story is about. And before we dive too deeply in it, it's important for us to understand some of the context that makes up the story of the Gospel of Mark. Now, it would be really dangerous for us to look through and read through the Gospel of Mark with a 21st century lens. Why? Because 2,000 years of history and change has taken place. We don't view the world the way that Mark, who wrote this, or anyone else in the story viewed the world. There's all kinds of differences. And so we want to make sure that we understand a bit of the context. And one of those is, who is Mark? Who is Mark? Is he one of the disciples? I mean, you have these four books in the beginning of the New Testament. Maybe they're all written by disciples. No, he's not a disciple. But who is Mark? See, Mark is, uh, is a person who shows up a handful of times throughout the New Testament. Not in any really flashy ways. Not in any really remarkable ways, but in some really neat ways. See, Mark's first showing in the New Testament is in Acts 12 when he goes on a missionary journey. He goes by John Mark. So if you read it in Acts, it's going to call him John Mark. Uh, he goes on a missionary journey with Paul and his cousin Barnabas. Well on that journey, stuff goes rough, and Mark decides to leave. And, and that puts a sour taste in the Apostle Paul's mouth. So later on... Whenever Barnabas wants to bring John Mark again, Paul's like, no, he flaked on us. He can't go. And so Paul and Barnabas have this disagreement, which causes them to split. John Mark goes with Barnabas, and now the gospel goes out via two different guys leading the charge, Barnabas and the apostle Paul. But that's not the end again of Mark. See, Mark comes back up again in 2 Timothy, and Paul this is years later, writes about John Mark and says this, that he is helpful to Paul in ministry. That in 1 Peter, John Mark's mentioned again, and, and Peter refers to him as his son in the faith. Now, throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, nobody debates that the Gospel of Mark is written by anybody other than John Mark. And John Mark has this really interesting and should provide a lot of comfort to us story throughout the New Testament because he does, you know, kind of like flake out and have a not-so-pretty moment. But yet later on, we see there's redemption and grace in John Mark. That despite the fact that he left and abandoned the mission to make disciples, he's brought back in and he's brought along. And Paul now views this guy who he was upset at as actually somebody who is a friend and a desperate care, need, and helpful person in ministry. The other key component of who Mark is is that uh, most historians think of that Mark was Peter's scribe. So Peter, like the apostle Peter, the disciple of Jesus, 
who followed throughout Jesus' ministry, wrote the books of First and Second Peter, that guy, walked on water, all that, that Mark was Peter's scribe, that he was his son in the faith, served with him in Rome. And so, so Mark, most historians believe, Mark writes the gospel according to Mark from the testimony of Peter. So you could see, as you've read through, if you've been reading through, or if, as we continue reading through, that Mark writes what Peter said happened. That, that this is written from an eyewitness account sharing of Peter. So here's just three bullet points for you on who Mark is. If you want to write these down, you can. Um, also, we find later in the book that Mark's mother is one of the Marys in the New Testament, who was close with Jesus, which gave Mark early childhood, most likely, access to seeing Jesus. That as a child, Mark most likely, or as a young adult, saw and interacted with Jesus, and his mom actually hosted part of the church in her house. The second thing, Mark's cousin was Barnabas, who was a close associate and partner of Paul in his ministry. The third thing, Mark was mentored and served alongside of Peter. Jesus is one of his, his closest disciples. And most importantly, as we look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote the Gospel of Mark. So we can trust, not only did Mark have access, but Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this Gospel. The, the other thing that's really helpful for us to see um, is when was this written? Mark was the first Gospel written. Like of, of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark's first to write. The important thing that we get in that is that Mark writes closest to all of these things actually taking place. Most people believe he wrote it shortly after Peter and Paul died. He takes all of what Peter had told him, all of what Paul had told him, and he writes this in the gospel according to Mark. And some of us are like, okay, well, how close was it? Most people believe it was written in the 50s or 60s, which means like, man, 50s or 60s what? 50s or 60s A.D., which, to put it in perspective, that's within or around 20 years after Jesus resurrects from the grave. About 20 years after Jesus raises from the dead, Paul or Mark writes this story, which might be like, 20 years, that's a long time. Is this really trustworthy? Well, think about it. 20 years ago, what were you doing? Could you write a detailed story of three years of your life from 20 years ago? Probably so. For me, that would have been the three years of middle school. I could give you some very, very clear stories with lots of detail from those three years. Because we're remembering people. God's created us that way. And so when we look at the gospel according to Mark, we're looking at a story that's written about 20 years after all of it took place, focused on three, three specific years of time, the last three years of Jesus' ministry. The other thing I want you to know before is that I'm going to use and I'm going to work and try really hard uh, we know in our super, one of the things we've been praying for Trailview is that we would be a church for people who, you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you did, or, or like whatever the story has been that you're here. Uh, and, and we want to be a church that's actively saying, we want you to be here, and we want to try to use less churchy language so that you understand and that we all like don't just use empty language. And, and so you're going to hear me, and I've already, I don't know how many times, use the word gospel. I'm going to use the word, we'll use the word gospel in two different ways. Gospel is in like a title for a book, meaning the gospel according to Mark, and gospel is in referring to the work that God has done for salvation. 
in the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, so to try and clear up as much confusion as we can on that, when I refer to, you'll have to listen to context, the word gospel might refer to the book as in like the 16 chapters of Mark, or it might refer to Jesus' work in salvation. So to get all that out of the way, all that's going to help shape and mold what we understand and see throughout the gospel of Mark. Today, as we look at the, uh, the introduction of this book, we see this, the announcement of the king. Mark 1, 1 through 8 is the announcement of the king, and it comes in three parts. We're going to follow these three parts, the good news, the messenger, and the king. The good news, the messenger, and the king. And in Mark 1, 1, we start with the good news. It says this in Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And he says the beginning of the gospel. So another, I love history, sorry, um, if you don't. This is the first time the word gospel is used in the New Testament. In Christian history, this is the first time the word gospel is used, but it's not the first use of the word gospel in history. See, historically, the word gospel is the word good news. And here's its context. This is true all the way back in the Old Testament. This is true in Greco-Roman history when this is actually taking place. The word gospel is used as a heralder of good news. And what would happen was the king would take his army out into battle. And while the king's out in the army and with battle, all the people in the city, what are they doing? Uh, put yourself in this picture. Imagine your husband or your son is out to battle with the army and the king. What are you doing? Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your grandfather. Maybe it's your husband. He's out to battle. What's going on in your heart and your mind in the city? You're worried. You're constantly concerned. Like, are, are, did, did they win? Are they going to win? Is, is he alive? What's happening? You see, after the battle was over, the king in victory would send good news, would send the gospel back to the city. And he would send a messenger who would enter into the city to prepare the main strip down the road. Think about like, we don't know if this is going to happen right now. Uh, think about, about 20 years ago when the Stars won the Stanley Cup. Um, that's the last time something like that happened in this area. Um, Think of that for a moment. So uh, we can detail history 20 years ago with that. So, uh, but but uh, what happens after they win? They do a parade, right? And so gospel, the word gospel, the, the word good news here is the king's message back with the messenger to declare to all the people in the city, all the people in the region, our king has come out victorious. And be ready, guys, he's on his way back. The king has won. He's been victorious. Prepare the streets for all the celebrations. Get all the party stuff out, all the music instruments going. Let's party. The king has won. Good news. That's what the word gospel means. It, it, like, imagine the announcement of gospel like the beginning of an NBA basketball game when they pull out the mic, the lights go dim, the lights begin to flash around everywhere, and what do they do? They yell out the starting lineup, Right? It's the announcement of these guys entering into the arena because these guys are important. These are your starting lineup for the whatever team you cheer for. Or, or picture it like the walk-up song for your favorite baseball player who walks up to the plate. It's the announcement of a person coming back. The, the word good news that Paul uses here, the beginning of the gospel, is the good news of Jesus Christ. 
that our king is coming, that our king has been victorious, and that our king is the son of God. See, the gospel of Jesus starts here with an announcement that he is coming back and he has won. The interesting thing about this, though, is that even though Mark starts his gospel, this good news, our first point, he doesn't start with information about Jesus. He starts with John the Baptist, which might seem odd or might seem weird, because if you look at or if you've read Matthew or Luke or John, they start with Jesus. And when they start with Jesus, they start with Jesus at varying places back in his history. See, one of them goes back to Abraham, and it's like, yeah, Jesus, heritage, Abraham. Some of them start with Jesus back to Adam and Eve. And John's like, I can outdo you one more. I'll start with Jesus and go back to creation. Before creation, I was. But Mark doesn't start with who Jesus was. Mark starts with John the Baptist. Mark starts with John the Baptist, and his only information he gives is super quick about who Jesus is. Good news, Jesus, Son of God. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. This is the messenger, the pre-runner of the king, the one sent to declare to the people, our king is coming, our king has been victorious in battle. Verse 2 says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. You see, this is the messenger. This is the person that goes in front of the king before they arrive back from battle to say, hey guys, listen up. King one, here's who he is, get ready. And that's John. And John, being this messenger, reveals us two things about John in this passage. One is that Jesus, the, the quotes here of Isaiah and Malachi, John is revealing to us two things. Jesus is the fulfillment of thousands of years of promise and prophecy. That Jesus is the fulfillment of thousands of years of promises. That for thousands of years, God has said, this is going to happen. And when John shows up, he's announcing, it's happening. Here we go. Get ready right now. It's happening. The second thing that we see in the fact that he focuses in on John, the messenger, is this. That Jesus is somebody who deserves an announcement. That Jesus is somebody who deserves an introduction. To be introduced and announced. Let's start by looking at this Jesus, Jesus' fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy. From Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate that first fruit and sinned in the garden, God made a promise to them in that moment. He said, yes, sin, yes, death is coming, but I will send an offspring of woman who will crush the head of the serpent who led you into this sin. First prophecy of somebody to come and fix all that sin has broken. Throughout the entire Old Testament, what is it? It's this really, 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 really long prophecy 
of the coming king, the coming rescuer, the coming redeemer, all telling us more about our God who was the one coming. And then we see this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This, this isn't going to be up on the screen. It's what Mark quotes here. He says this. This is Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Remember, this is God talking. I, God sends his messenger. This messenger is going to prepare the way for God. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. See, here's the, some, some really cool stuff going on here. Then the fact that Mark quotes this is this. Mark's connecting a lot of dots for us. Mark's connecting a lot of dots for the people he's talking to. Because here's the deal. Prior to, Jesus, well, prior to John the Baptist, God has not sent a prophet to speak to his people in over 400 years. So for 400 years, God's people have not heard from God. Mark writes, connecting the dots to the last prophet, Malachi, last book of your Bible, chapter 3, where God says, I'm going to send one more prophet that's going to go before the one who's coming, me, Jesus. So Mark, starting with this part right here with John, is saying all the Old Testament pointing to this moment. Everything happening, Malachi pointing to this moment. My messenger, John, shows up on the scene to prepare the way for the king. The interesting thing we get here, though, also is like, I'll explain to you kind of the context of the word, the word gospel, that after the, after the victory from battle, in Malachi, he says, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of host. The Lord of hosts, that, that name for God means the God of war. That, that it actually says in Malachi, the God of war is coming back from battle. And in his return, he's going to send a messenger to declare the good news that he's won. So John is echoing 400 years old prophecy about Jesus coming to place and or coming to bear right before Jesus. John plays the part and looks the part of a prophet. You see, John looks just like Elijah from the Old Testament. He dresses in weird clothes and he eats weird food and he lives in the middle of nowhere. He looks like and acts like Elijah. So when this people see John in the wilderness, dressed like this, eating these things, talking like this, they immediately are like, whoa, God sent a prophet. And what happens? What happens? Revival breaks out in the whole area. And it actually unfolds for this. Mark tells us that as God begins to speak through John, what happens? Revival. Revival breaks out, that the Lord begins to move in this place. But not just in little stuff. It's not like the village came out to listen to this preacher outside by the river. No, it's like all of the villages came to listen to this guy. And it's not just like all of the villages. It's like the whole region has come to listen to John. But not just the whole region, but even the capital city. And all of its leaders, its religious leaders, its political leaders, its civil leaders, all are coming out. The people who serve in the temple are coming out in the middle of nowhere, all of them in massive crowds to listen to John, to be baptized by 
John because God is speaking again. God is speaking again. And we'll get to in just a minute what God is saying through John. The second thing that we see in Mark starting with John is this. I said a second ago that Jesus deserves to be announced. Jesus deserves to be announced. That he is that much of a big deal that he deserves a public introduction. Now, maybe you've seen some movies kind of like The Count of Monte Cristo or different movies where maybe it's a fancy ballroom dinner and a really important guest arrives. What happens? Somebody steps up to the railing and they say, the Queen of England, and everybody's attention turns, and they all look, and then they enter in their fancy clothes and whatnot into the ballroom. Similar to the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, and some of you, it may play out on a weekly or monthly or annual basis um, with somebody called Nana. That when Nana arrives, there's typically some sort of announcement, at least in my home there is. Whoever notices Nana's car in the driveway first lets everyone else know. Nana's here, Nana's here, Nana's here. And so the, the commotion rises and the dogs already knew and like all this starts going on all because this important person in the life of this family is about to walk in the door, Nana. Because important people deserve an introduction, deserve an announcement. A long anticipated guest arrival deserves recognition and God himself is coming. No one more important. No one more long anticipated. 400 years. Thousands of years of promise. All amounting to this moment. Like in the Count of Monte Cristo, news has been buzzing about this, and it's about to happen. Jacopo, in the Gospel of Mark, John, steps up before the crowds gathered and makes the announcement. The king is about to make his entrance. The promised one is about to arrive. Victory has been won. Prepare the way for the king. What is John actually saying, though? What is John actually saying? And this is the, second, the third part. So we had... The, uh, <clears throat> in the three parts of this, we had the good news, we had the messenger, and then we have John's message, which is the king. The message that John has is the king is coming, the greatest one is to follow. And this is in verses 7 through 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John's message is a message preparing God's people by pointing them to Jesus, the one whom God has always been promising to come. That, that God is coming in thousands of years of history. Now thousands of people gathered around John. And what does John do? He points them to Jesus. What does John do? With thousands of followers, with the, the literal Roman rulers of the region, Herod, not, not maybe coming, but even if he doesn't come, he knows very specific things that John believes and is saying. 
You see, John's popularity and notoriety is unheard of in this region. Everyone knows about John. Everyone's coming to listen to John. John's John's influence, John's fame, John's popularity is at an all-time high. But John knows his place. John knows that his place is not the king. He's not there to say, hey guys, prepare the way for me. John knows his place is to point everyone to the coming king. The coming king whose victory has been won. See, John is the message bearer who comes back from battle before the army and the king to make all the people aware. Picture yourself maybe standing on the streets of New York City at the Macy's Day Parade. I don't know if you like all the floats, if you watch it on TV or whatnot. Uh, but I'm sure that there are some people out there who stand on the side of the street and they see Snoopy go by and they see all the other floats and Pikachu and whatever. All of them go by, all the dancers and all the bands and all that stuff go by and none of it meets or satisfies. Why? Because they're standing there anticipating one person to come and they don't come till the very end of the parade. Santa Claus. Now, I'm not making a statement. I don't care what you do with Santa Claus. I'm just putting a picture that that, that that person standing there is anticipating the last person to come through. In the same way, John is like the person in the float right before Santa Claus, saying, hey, I know I'm not as cool as this guy, but get ready, he's coming. He's coming. Pay attention, look close, Santa's on his way. In the same way, all the Old Testament prophets... All of God's work throughout history has culminated to this moment and this point on this person to make this announcement about this king. And he looks weird, probably unexpected. He's not like Jacopo who stands up on the railing dressed to the nines. He's got on camel skin, hair, a leather belt, and he eats bugs and honey. And he's out in the middle of nowhere. An unexpected announcement about a long-anticipated king. Jesus. An unexpected announcement about a long-expected king. Jesus. And John is saying, the king is about to arrive. So how does the announcement of a king from 2,000 years ago the promise of that King and Savior impact you and I today. I want to walk through, through a few different application points and ways that this impacts us. Uh, the first one is this. This should serve as a reminder to us that we have a covenant promise, promise-making and keeping God. That we should hear in this that we have a covenant slash promise-making and keeping God. Which means that we can trust God to be faithful to keep his promises. Even and especially when we don't see the whole picture, we can trust that he does. Oftentimes we live our lives in anxiety, anticipation, like the people in a city would, wondering if the king's coming back. Wondering if the king's been slain. Wondering if they're going to be taken captive as slaves. 
We have a promise-keeping and promise-making God, which means that we can trust His promise that He has a never-ending love for you. Never-ending, never-giving-up, never-changing love for you as His kids. He will always love you. Which means that we can trust that when He says He has forgiven you in Christ, He's actually forgiven you. That He is a promise-keeping God. That in Christ we have been forgiven of all of our sin and no sin that we commit after our moment of salvation will ever take that away. So in moments of condemnation, when you feel the weight of your sin, we don't have to go back and plead for God to save us again. We trust that He has and He will continue to, to forgive us. We can trust that He is a covenant promise-keeping God and that He will provide for us. The Bible says that he cares for the birds and the flowers. How much more will, more will he care for you, his children? That we can cast our anxieties on him about our provision, and we can boldly and courageously give generously to his kingdom and to others. Because he will keep his promise for our provision. That he promises his presence. Not like presents like Christmas. Presents. Like he promises his presence that no matter how dark it may get in life, he says he will never leave you or forsake you. That I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That we have a covenant-making, promise-making, and promise-keeping God. And he wants us to come to him when we worry, when we doubt, when we get anxious. The second thing that I want us to see from this is that, is that we need to believe that Jesus is king and that his kingdom or his rule in our life, his reign is for our good and our joy. That Jesus is king, believe that and submit to his rule in your life as good for you. That his commandments for, are for your good. That when Jesus says, as my disciple live and do these things, those things are for your good. When you're tempted, when you doubt, when you face difficulty, we can trust and obey our king because we have a good king. Like this can be difficult for us to understand. And I think it's really helpful that we're going through, not just in life in the moment with our country and whatnot right now, but just with the way that we in our world oftentimes view authority as like a bad thing. That there is nothing bad about authority as a concept and only good as when it comes to authority when it comes to God and Jesus. That Jesus' authority over you, his kingship, his rule and reign, his kingdom will only produce fruit and joy and gladness and good in your life. That he is a good king. Like the old hymn, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, says, Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. That trusting and obeying Him as our King produces in us a gladness and a joy through whatever circumstances we may face. Another way that this plays out is, is in, in God's sovereignty, He has placed you in the place you're at right now in life for your good. That He is King, which means what's going on in your life right now is in some way, I don't know the whole picture. He does for your good. 
that in suffering, we can trust that Jesus is your king, your good king. That in singleness, you can trust that Jesus is your king, your good king. In struggle, you can trust that Jesus is your king, your good king. In, in celebration, you can trust that this is a celebration as a result of the work and the fruitfulness of my king. In difficulty, you can trust that Jesus is still your good king. In conflict, you can trust that Jesus is still your good king. In, in job or in joblessness, you can trust that Jesus is still your good king. In anxiety or in depression, you can trust that Jesus is still your good king. In success, you should and need to continue to trust that Jesus is your king. In waiting, in long-suffering, we can trust that he is our good king. The last thing that I want us to see here is that this should move us to a place where we believe that Jesus is our King and He is our Savior, that He is the Christ, that God has sent Jesus to make Himself known. The King has arrived. Let me connect the dots on this for a second. What does the word gospel come from? It comes from this history where the King would send a messenger back to declare what? The battle's won. The king has been victorious. Celebrate. Prepare for him. For us, we should hear this in this way. The announcement's been made. The king has come. We on this side of history know he's won. The, the, the conflict and the battle that began in Genesis chapter 3 was announced as complete in Mark chapter 1 when the word gospel was said. That the, the king has won. The conflict, the division, the fight against sin is over. That we, we can trust in Jesus, the one who has fought the fight, who has come up victorious over sin. By your faith in Jesus, to, to trust in his life for you, in his death in your place, and his resurrection he has secured the victory over sin and death. And he has given the spoils of that victory, eternal life, to all who believe. So I would encourage you today that if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior and King, the announcement's been made, he's won. Repent and believe. To believe that Jesus lived in your place without sin, that he died in your place in your death for your sin, he rose from the dead to secure it. The last thing I want to encourage you to do, maybe this is a take to your home group, take to your, um, take to your dinner table, take to the car ride, is to just think about, how can I live my life like John? Announcing the king, not myself. It's where everything in my life is a platform pointing to the king, Jesus. And you see, God has promised for thousands of years that he would mend all that was wrong and broken by sin. That he would come out victorious. 
and that he would send the Savior King. And he's done it. And Mark, eight, Mark 1 through 8 is the announcement of this King. The victory has been won. Our Savior and our King, Jesus. 